important that we don't just consider energy and net zero in isolation. Uh, we and all the English water companies signed up uh, to net zero by 2030 uh, as part of a, a water industry public interest commitment that we made uh, back in April this year. Businesses can help themselves, I think, by being prepared to validate their claims and actually back their promises with tangible actions. What we want to do at the UK business is really drive a leadership position across the whole Costa Estate to make sure we're doing the right thing and really stepping up against some of these challenges. It's a complex argument, uh, it's a complex problem, um, but ultimately if we don't, if we do not do something now until we understand that problem in greater detail, all we are potentially doing is, is adding to that problem. So hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. As you've heard from those sound bites, this episode is discussing that big business buzzword or phrase, which is net zero. This podcast, by the way, is being brought to you as part of ED's Net Zero November, a month of dedicated content and events that aim to incite and inspire the business community towards net zero. I'm Edie's content editor, Matt Mace, and joining me today is our reporter, Sarah George. Sarah, how are you and what have you been up to during Net Zero November? So how am I is that I'm probably dreaming in terms of Net Zero um, by now, which probably means that I'm extremely busy. Um, so some of the content that I've been delivering for Net Zero November, I have interviews up with John Lewis Partnership, um, which set a 2050 Net Zero goal before the UK government did, um, and Bill Weil, who used to be the sustainability lead at Facebook, and prior to that Google's clean energy czar, so he has a lot to say about where this is going, um, where this conversation is going based on how it has gone. Um, in the past. Um, other than that, just attending a lot of our events and then prepping my next two interviews that will come out before the end of the month. And those are with Absolute Company, the vodka brand, um, and PMI, the tobacco firm. Yeah, vodka and cigarettes is, uh, yeah. is what, how, it, how it came up in the, in the meeting. Um, but, you know, they, they're, they're both... Yeah, I mean, they've both got some health aspects to their, their strategy as, as well. So it's, it's not like they're just being green for the sake of, you know, ruining our livers and our lungs. <laughs> And yeah, it's uh, it's been a frantic couple of weeks uh, with lots going on. I think actually the amount I've had to type on a daily basis is actually what's keeping me warm during these incredibly cold days. Yeah, I had a friend text me last night just to make sure that I didn't have repetitive strain injury, so that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, um, hopefully we're not working too hard to the point where that does become an issue. Um, so here's the order of today's uh, order of events. Sorry for today's episode. <clears throat> so for part one, we are going to deliver two interviews looking at how both the utilities and the built environment sector are looking to deliver net zero emissions. Um, and once we're back from a short break, Sarah is going to be recapping our special trip to Birmingham, where we met a host of energy leaders. And then we're going to go into the final part um, where we're looking at one of the technologies that's pretty much deemed essential to delivering net zero uh, in the UK. Um, and we'll also be picking our favourite net zero announcements and stories of the month so far. 
And that's a lot to uh, unpack on this Net Zero November podcast. And I do want to get we going with the interviews. But before we do, um, Sarah, why don't you, and I say, why don't you? This is pretty, <laughs> I, I demand that you uh, give us a very brief history of Net Zero. Basically, why, why, why have we decided that a month of content around Net Zero is, is important? What, what, why are we doing this? Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> Obviously, it's because it's something that everyone in this space is talking about. Um, at the moment but it's also something that's been coming for for a while um, so the discussions around this in the policy space have been going on for a couple of years ago in the UK um, but back then it was very much sort of an ideology rather than an achievable item. Um, looking back at our coverage of this I'd say that the term kept coming up more and more after October 2018, which is when the IPCC put mm-hmm. out its landmark report on global warming. Um, this was the report that outlined, for the first time, sort of what the difference between 1.5C of warming and 2C of warming above pre-industrial temperatures would look like um, and what we'd need to do to get there. Um, and for 1.5, the most ambitious trajectory on the Paris Agreement, um, the scientists contributing to this report concluded that global emissions would have to reach net zero by mid-century. Um, net zero meaning that any remaining emissions were offset so that the accounting checks out at zero. Um, off the back of this report, the, go- the government here in the UK wrote to the Committee on Climate Change for advice on how we could nationally meet net zero, and that report came out in May this year, and some of the big bullet points were multi-billion pound investments in CCUS, mm-hmm. um, bringing forward the ban on new petrol and diesel car sales to 2035, um, quadrupling the amount of clean energy that we generate domestically, and rewilding 20 to 27,000 hectares of land annually. Um, and ministers are mulling this over and some green groups and MPs go to Chris Stark of the CCC in the same month and say, you know, why 2050? Can we have more explanation as to why you've picked these specific things? And his key takeaway was that the group did look at 2040 and 2045, but concluded that the negative impacts on the national economy and um, social issues, including human health and well-being, um, just didn't check out with either of those dates. Um, So after hearing that evidence, the government agrees in June that it's going to change the Climate Change Act 2008 to include a legally binding net zero target by 2050, so up from the existing target of 80%. Shortly after, Scotland and Wales both accept the CCC's advice for their own um, legislation. So it's been gaining traction politically. um, And in the business space, this paves the way for a raft of businesses to make pledges, not only in line with 2050, as every business in the UK will now be forced to do by law, um, but ahead of that. And I just had a look back at some of the ones that I think are more ambitious. So Aldi UK actually says it's already net zero, but uh-huh. it is. it has said that it's investing a lot in offsetting to do that. Um, some of the companies you might not expect to be targeting 2030 include ENI, the Italian oil and gas major, and sports series formula one um and then some companies are going one step further and saying you know what we're going to sequester more carbon than we put out and become either carbon negative or carbon positive based Mm -hmm. on how you use the terminology and one of them was interface who i knew you yes interviewed as well um a couple of other 
little things <laughs> is that we uh, the UK was then confirmed to host COP26. So businesses are just upping their game to try and have something to show off mm-hmm. there, I think. Um, it hasn't been perfect. There's been a lot of policy controversies. So the government rejected some further advice from the CCC against carrying over emissions and including international shipping and aviation in 2050 net zero. Um, businesses still say there aren't enough short-term frameworks covering hard-to-abate sectors. Some are sceptical of the Conservative Party's reliance on nuclear fusion and CCUS in its net zero um, manifesto. Um, ministers have bounced back and launched a net zero treasury review and pu- promised new plans for buildings and transport. Um, but to cut a long story short, the point where we're at now is that this is really being talked about, a lot of action, it's all forming up and still being very hotly debated. And I mean, we were originally going to be um, helping helping out with Green GB Week, which mm-hmm. was a net zero theme. Obviously, it's now been delayed um, to next to next year, but we thought, why not? Why yeah, not go yeah. ahead? Everyone's talking about this. Everyone wants a bit more clarity to look at where, where they should be setting their ambitions and how they could achieve them. So, yeah. yeah, that's sort of a potted history. There's obviously much more. I'm not professing to be the expert on this. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I, when, I, when I asked for a brief one, I thought it was going to be, you know, one or two lines. So that was that was very... <laughs> if, that, if that was your brief, I'd, I'd, I'm a bit worried about what your in-depth would be, Sarah. It would be pages upon pages. But it was pages and pages of very valuable information for our listeners and even me actually I think some of that stuff I wasn't actually quite aware of especially around the, the health and well-being aspect of the net zero target um, and yeah like you said it's, it's created this weird kind of ripple effect in the same way we were in this post Paris agreement world where nations started ramping up ambitions we're now in this kind of post IPCC world where businesses kind of realise um, the need to, to ramp up and you mentioned aviation a few times I think that's the one sector that's really stood out and maybe the uh, around the net zero targets and maybe the way they're going to get there um, aren't the most concrete and there's there's risk of greenwash in a few of those targets around offsetting that you mentioned but generally where the business community is moving in the right way and and one of those communities within within the whole business sphere that is moving in the right way is uh, is the water companies actually um, and I think that's a good place to start with our first interview. Okay, so first up on our whistle-stop tour of the net zero transition is Gordon Rogers, uh, the Head of Sustainability at Yorkshire Water. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity. And, and so this, this chapter has actually started out um, as, a, as a kind of mass email from myself that I sent around to a lot of energy and, and sustainability leaders, inviting them to take part in our net zero November month of content, either through... Uh, some stories, some, some blogs or, or, or pledges to be uploaded to the Mission Possible Wall and, and based on a bit of feedback with myself and, and, and your team at Yorkshire Water we kind of decided that a, a podcast chat would be great because you, you, you're doing quite a lot this month and, and in particular the last week or so around net zero and, and, and carbon which we'll touch on in a minute but to start with, so for our listeners that perhaps are unaware of, of Yorkshire Water's own relationship with, with net zero what, what is it that you're, you're really focusing on in terms of your own carbon targets? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's as you say, a busy a busy time for us on carbon, and we've really been stepping it up over the last uh, weeks and months, uh, and lots of folks in November. So uh, we're a really energy-intensive uh, business, is, is water production and delivery and wastewater treatment. 
Um, and we've had a great success in reducing emissions o over the last sort of, 10, 15 years. This is not really new to us. We've we reduced our operational emissions by about 80% um, since 2005. But uh, we and all the English water companies signed up uh, to net zero by 2030 uh, as part of a, a water industry public interest commitment that we made uh, back in April this year. Great, and yeah, we, we covered that um, we covered that on on the website, and it was a, a great example of a whole sector moving towards a common goal. Uh, something that I've only really seen yeah. um, in in probably water and utilities and the built environment in terms of the whole collaborative um, push. So it's, it's great to see, and I think the one of the standout things was amongst you, you commit to planting eleven million trees um, in order to kind of protect and enhance the national environment across 6,000 hectares of English land as well. Um, and again, the conversations that I've had internally ahead of this, it sounds like um, you've been focusing quite a bit on the internal engagement around net zero and your and your carbon neutral goals to, to really kind of mobilize uh, some action. So did you care to share a bit of details about what um, I believe has been called uh, your, your carbon week? Yeah, that's right. We've, we've had our first ever Carbon Week and hopefully the first of, of many more. Um, so I, I guess just to, to look back again, and we're, because we're so energy intensive, uh, uh, electricity forms something like 60-70% of our operational carbon emissions. So for the last 10 or 15 years, that's been uh, a really big focus for us and lots of investment, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, in renewable energy like uh, most of the UK water companies. Uh, it makes really good environmental and cost sense these days, so kind of why, why wouldn't you do that? Um, but that's kind of quite a targeted, almost um, uh, partly hidden uh, activity that goes on within the business within a few core colleagues. But now that we're really targeting, we've stepped up that ambition again to get to net zero is, is a whole other ballgame. Um, so to get to that, we've really started thinking about how do we engage all 3,500 of our employees at Yorkshire Water? Uh, how do we engage our sort of framework uh, partners in the tier one supply chain and e even right down the supply chain uh, far beyond tier one ultimately and, and to our customers um, and trying to uh, treat them much more as citizens where they also have a role. So we're trying to think about all of these activities um, and then kind of the, the, the latest part of that really was the first week in November for us was Carbon Week uh, and that was predominantly internally focused but there, there were some external elements as well which I might come on to but yeah so for the first time really we've had over we've had, We've had a whole focus week where through all of our internal comms channels uh, and a whole portfolio of interesting kind of some mostly quite light-hearted interactive ways of engaging a whole plethora of colleagues uh, lots of them out in the field and driving uh, Yorkshire water vans uh, and doing very much operational frontline activities right the way through to all of those sat at a desk uh, or in our call center uh, in bradford all those kinds of so there's a whole plethora of different colleagues and we've come up with a whole program of different activity to try and target uh, different people in different ways and as I say it's, it's designed to be quite fun and light-hearted through the most of it um, and, and so we've had things like we had two swapping days uh, to try and sort of face into the fast fashion element of things uh, and in two of our office sites uh, for the first time we've done this really uh, but people were bringing in uh, still, still good condition but uh, clothes that they no longer want to swap with somebody else's and try and encourage that um, and that seems to be really successful. And then some other stuff went to the charity shop too at the end of it, but um, nothing put to waste. And then we uh, came up with uh, a game called Play Your Carbon Right, <laughs> uh, which, which is a, a play on Bruce Forsyth uh, back in the day uh, and kind of a higher or lower thing. 
Um, and that was probably the most successful event, really. So we've had that through um, various buildings uh, and actually has been touring lots of leads through the lead city conversation over over the summer as well on a on a separate thing with the Leeds Council. But that, that's kind of drawn people in and educating what, what's the difference between the carbon impact of uh, uh, your weekly stake, maybe, versus a glass of tap water, uh, versus a flight to New York, uh, a whole range of different things and what their carbon impact is. And people, you can see people are very shocked uh, by some of the things when you turn over the card uh, and they uh, have no idea really of the hidden impact um, of what they're consuming in different ways. So that was really quite engaging. And then right the way through, we had a, a travel challenge and we tried to get people, uh, and there was sort of small prizes involved of getting people out of their cars. Uh, again, both operationally, where it's really challenging when you've got thousands of sites across Yorkshire, typically very remote, the so public transport is not a front runner, right the way through to the offices uh, where we've got some city centre locations and maybe we can encourage people through that. So, um, and that was reasonably successful. It's certainly got people talking uh, and of course people jumped to kind of, um, it's quite hard to break people out of their routines uh, and of course we all have our own excuses why we need to drive uh, and that's the most convenient thing for us whether it be families or outside work commitments or whatever it is. We, we've got all the excuses um, everybody would have just like anybody in society. So it was, it was really useful, I think, uh, to try and kind of incentivize people and talk through that. And we did get some people to switch to the bike, uh, to public transport, uh, buses and trains, um, and to work at home and use uh, Skype and other technologies to, to push the remote working uh, and really embed that further. Uh, right the way through to operational teams, um, where kind of the big energy consumption is. Um, and, and whilst that's been a focus for a long time, uh, there's still lots more we can do on energy efficiency. So we kind of had an operational challenge uh, of, of could the site guys uh, and site teams use less energy that week. And so water production had a really good focus on this. Um, and I guess relatively small in the scheme of things, but they took out 28 tons of carbon in the week by uh, optimizing our already optimized water resource plan that we do on a weekly basis uh, and trying to use the low energy um, consuming sites and sources of water rather than the higher uh, energy and carbon consuming sites um, and, and particularly at one of our treatment works at Elvington Water Treatment Works they had a particular focus there which was really quite interesting and that 28 tons was despite some of the issues we had with the weather and other issues during that week so it's probably even to stand still would have been good but to make a small saving is even better. So really there's a whole range of stuff and I guess behind that what we've tried to start doing is tailor where we've been going so we've had for lots of years, you know, e-learning packages and um, kind of sheep dip company-wide approaches, which kind of are fine and they, they're a start, but they have limited impacts, I think, certainly after a while they lose their impact. And so really what we've been trying to do is, is, is tailor things to different audiences within the business where they might have different responses to reduce carbon. And hopefully it's just the first week. It was a real success. There was a nice buzz in the atmosphere uh, in the business. So. Um, I think uh, come 2020, I can see us having many more carbon weeks and other different innovative ways of engaging um, colleagues, customers, suppliers, uh, the whole gambit. And frankly, if we're going to get to net zero, that is very much where we need to go. Great. Yeah, no, um, and I, it certainly sounds like you've got all the all the ingredients there to be able to carry on um, that, that kind of uh, action focus for, 
for many yeah. more weeks, and um, I, I may have to, I may have to, I say borrow, steal the uh, play your carbons right for any kind of subheadings I do around net zero. I think that's a very, very <laughs> you're, you're very welcome to steal that. <laughs> Great, thank you, Gordon. Um, and, and you mentioned that it was that that kind of aspect, that kind of engagement is essential on, on the path to net zero, and that kind of brings me on nicely to, to my last question, um, and, and that basically is, you know, where we are now versus where we need to get to. What, what do you think is the kind of the one key lever? And I realise that's quite a loaded question. There's a lot that you could choose from. But one key lever that will help us, you know, as, a, as, as the UK, uh, get to net zero. Well, that, that is the one lever. If only there was a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, I, I think the way the, uh, the silver bullet has been kind of the last 10 years, and uh, we and all the water companies really have been massively investing in renewable energy. And that's taken us a long way. Um, and then increasingly now buying only renewable certified green energy. We and others are doing that, which helps us get to that 80% reduction that we're starting to see, which is, you know, that's, that's a huge feat in itself. Um, but to get to net zero and to really bring down the energy consumption and drive true efficiency, that's a whole different ballgame again. So I guess um, maybe if I could elaborate quickly on a, a more than one thing. Um, uh, I think energy efficiency as well as energy uh, generation has got to be key. So how do we actually use less? And we all struggle in the UK water sector with kind of ageing infrastructure bases, uh, infrastructure assets and so on. Um, so how do we uh, replace old pumps, for example? A lot of our electricity consumption is in old pumps. And if you replace them with a newer one, you would start to see reductions. Uh, but of course, there's, there's, um, you've got to spend up front uh, to be able to deliver the long-term saving. Uh, and in this period of getting to the lowest cost today, that's really trying to push against that whole ethos. So there is, there is a long-term shift that's needed. Uh, we and some of the other water companies are big landowners, um, so we have 28,000 hectares of land in Yorkshire. Uh, a lot of it is peat upland, kind of iconic Yorkshire upland. Um, and so we're looking, and again, the kind of things with other business priorities on water quality and wildlife and recreation and all these different things. But how do we restore all that peat in Yorkshire is kind of something we're now starting to talk about. Um, and really, again, step it up from the bits we've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years to now a really mature company-wide, region-wide uh, activity and similarly the, the 11 million trees uh, pledge nationally that you touched on we've got 1 million trees as a pledge which we've started planting tens of thousands in Calder Valley which is a sort of fleet, uh, uh, a flash flood catchment very steep sided catchment um, around Halifax and Todmorden those kind of areas there's all these different levers that we're going to have to play and we are going to have to do all of them to get to net zero and even then that might not quite get all the way so there are some innovative areas that we need to pursue particularly on process emissions where we're, where we're releasing methane and uh, other greenhouse gases straight to air from our biological processing tanks, uh, that that's going to be a real challenge that the, the whole water industry is starting to think about how do we research into that and, and innovate. And then I guess just the one thing to end on was uh, I was at the Social Contract Summit uh, for the water sector a few weeks ago, which was a really interesting event. Uh, and Scott, uh, Scottish Water and the Scottish Government were both speaking uh, back to back and they've introduced a new duty in Scotland um, which I think could be a real enabler across the UK if we could replicate it, where it's driving the water companies to recognise best value um, across everything they do and to maximise that value that they can deliver for society rather than delivering lowest cost. And there is a difference. So if you can unlock our land bank, you can, uh, uh, land bank, uh, you can unlock all that renewables and energy efficiency potential, engaging with customers on how to use less water, all of these things would really maybe be galvanised by a review of our fundamental duties as a sector uh, and the whole regulatory regime that we all operate within and so on. After 30 years of privatisation, maybe it's time that we take quite a bold look at that to be fit for the future.
Yeah, no, that was um, yeah bold. I think is definitely the the, the key message here. It's, it's time to <laughs> time to be bold. And yeah, the best value is an interesting um, phrase. I'll certainly be looking into that as well. Um, Gordon, I appreciate this has been like I mentioned at the start. This is a, a whistle stop tour, and we've got to go. I've got to rush back to the to the studio to uh, to welcome in our next guest. But um, it's it's been a pleasure speaking to you today, and we'll we'll certainly be in touch to to hear about how how those plans are transitioning in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. There'll be loads more coming from the water sector over the coming months and years. So. Uh... Lots more coming. Thank you, Gordon, there um, for a great insight into Yorkshire Water's own Carbon Week. Sarah, were you aware that the UK's nine major water and sewage providers, which obviously includes Yorkshire Water, um, United Utilities and Anglian Water, had committed to planting 11 million trees uh, to improve the natural environment across the UK uh, and help create a net zero sector by 2030? I did, but only because I was writing a story about trees this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, what about this one? Are you also aware that there is a £700 million strategic energy hub near Ellesmere Port in Cheshire that clusters together technologies in energy generation and resource management that is kind of leading the way on clean growth and in, and net zero delivery? No, you've stumped me there. Good. Well, you know, one out, one out of two is not, not too bad. Um, and for those of you who didn't know about the hub, you're in for a treat. So joining me now for this segment of the Net Zero November podcast is Victoria Merton, who is Peel Environment's Director of Corporate Affairs. Victoria leads on the energy and environmental issues for Peel and is here today to discuss the role and potential of UK energy hubs in terms of delivering net zero for the nation. Uh, Victoria, firstly, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, And... So we're here right now to discuss something called Protoss, uh, which has been described to me as a flagship £700 million strategic energy hub um, located in Cheshire, which um, your organisation has been leading on. So shall we start with just a bit around what that energy hub uh, entails and why it kind of chimes in well with the net zero theme that we're running this month? Yes, thank you, Matt. Protoss is a low-carbon energy cluster formed of innovative technologies that has been working towards and is bringing forward new generation that will deliver into the carbon net zero agenda for 2030. Okay, brilliant. And in terms of the the types of uh, technologies that we can expect to see at these type of energy hubs, um, you know, what what is it? I, I, I'm guessing it's going to be kind of renewables and storage based, or is there a bit more to that as well? There's actually um, a complete diverse mixture of energy technologies at this forward leading cluster. We have uh, biomass, which is bringing forward Um, energy from waste wood and refuse-derived fuel. We've got waste plastics coming forward under innovative technology from Powerhouse Energy, which will transform waste plastics into hydrogen. And then we've also got low-carbon energy technologies in terms of a smart grid coming forward, which will take the cheapest type of low-carbon energy generation but also the lowest carbon energy generation and feed it directly into the energy intensive businesses in the area and into domestic users. Oh, so that's really interesting so when we look at net zero November it's quite easy to just look at net zero through the lens of 
of just lowering carbon. And it seems like this energy hub has taken resource management into um, into account as, as well. Do you see those two aspects being quite complementary to each other in terms of you know delivering a sustainable future? I think they're they're absolutely essentially intertwined. And Peel Environmental has been working with the Northwest Business Leaders Team and the Northwest Hydrogen Association to make sure that um, the resources that we have in the region, and Cheshire is one of the strongest economies, but it's also one of the most energy intensive economies. 5% of the UK's energy is used in one small part of Cheshire. So it's very important from an economic, a sustainable economic point of view that we allow these industries to still work for the UK in the most sustainable, low carbon, efficient way possible. And in doing that, we need to make sure that we recycle resources as much as possible in terms of these waste plastics um, and that we bring forward new types of technology which the University of Chester has developed at Thornton Science Park and make sure that at this cluster that these are delivered out in, in, a, in a business efficient way so that clean growth can come forward. So we are making sure we are keeping emissions as low as possible and reducing all the time, but also making sure that we are keeping our businesses in the region as globally competitive as possible by reducing their energy costs up to 20%. Okay, that's great. And I want to touch on hydrogen just uh, just for just a second, if you can. We've had some um, a few emails sent about, you know, for this month of content, make sure that, you know, hydrogen is very much being spoken about um, and it seems like it has quite a key role um, to provide in not just you know a low carbon uh, aspect that will help reach net zero but also deliver into that economic benefit that you also mentioned. The economic benefit from delivering hydrogen as a, an, an energy generation in this country um, has been acknowledged by academics and the government the cluster, the Northwest Energy and Hydrogen Cluster, can deliver 33,000 jobs with over £4 billion worth of investment, but most crucially could save 10 million tonnes of carbon per year. That's, um, yeah, that's a huge amount. That's, yeah, that's really big. Okay, that, I did not know that. That's um, yeah, really eye-opening for myself. Um, and, and Victoria, then, just to, just to finish on, so um, we're, we're discussing how organisations and, and businesses are, you know, helping to achieve or, or build the building blocks towards net zero but but in your own opinion what do you feel that um the uk and that can this could be from a policy aspect it could be from a technology aspect it could just be from a mindset aspect what do you feel like is the one key key hurdle or key opportunity that we need to discover in order to create a net zero in uk by 2050 it's very important that we don't just consider energy and net zero in isolation it's it's really crucial that the focus on low carbon energy generation is brought into being with economic productivity and the skills agenda. So unless we are training our, our students and um, our young professionals to be innovative and to research and develop these technologies, such as Protoss has at the moment, um, we're not gonna be able to deliver carbon net zero and beyond 
not just for the UK, but, but for the world. We are, Protoss is a world-leading blueprint for an energy innovation and industry cluster. But in order to continue that journey and support the UK, we need to make sure that we are training our young people and focusing on bringing the skills agenda to the forefront in order to make sure this happens. No, I, I completely um, agree with that skills aspect. And I think it was the CTC that said that, you know, net zero could be achieved within the economic constraints that we set up from the original Climate Change Act as well. So I, I feel like this is a, a really good opportunity to, to do so. And, and Victoria, just to finish on then, um, it's, we know we're quite close to the uh, end of the year. So um, it'd be great just to have a little scan on the horizon. 2020 for, for, for you and Peer Environmental, what's, what's your kind of big focus around these, uh, these energy hubs for next year? The, the two main focuses for us, uh, if I'm allowed to have two. Uh, one would be the Northwest Energy and, and Hydrogen Cluster coming forward uh, because it's a collaboration between Greater Manchester, Liverpool City Region and Cheshire and Warrington and led by the Northwest Business Leaders team. Um, without that collaboration and that partnership between the public and private sector, um, we, we would never get anything done. So um, this isn't just one group of people in one part of the country bringing something forward. This is a partnership approach in, in a region cross-lept in order to make sure that we've got something for the UK. The second one would be looking at the region in sharp focus. We've got energy intensive industries, we've got fantastic innovative technologies, but, but we need to make those two things work together. So unless you can deliver a small, smart microgrid, so it's like a trading platform to make sure that businesses and domestic users are, are receiving not just the cheapest energy, but the lowest carbon energy. And you use that technology in order to make sure we're functioning as efficiently as possible to, to put carbon net zero right at the forefront of everything we do, but still be that global trading power out of Cheshire and Warrington. Well, it sounds like very uh, exciting times ahead for, for both Cheshire and Warrington. So I'll be sure to uh, keep my eyes peeled on, on that area and see the developments. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. So hello and welcome to part two of episode 75 of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Sarah, I've, I've spoken far too much um, already on this episode and, and delivered the first two interviews. So why don't you take over this section and tell the listeners all about e the ED team's trip to Birmingham? Yes, and it feels like it was just yesterday. <laughs> Honestly, time's going so quickly this month. Um, but our trip to Birmingham was primarily to host Spark 2.0. Um, an event for our Energy Leaders Club, and this is a really hands-on event format. So there's a keynote address and panel discussion in the morning, but then participants essentially work on two roundtables to collaboratively share challenges and develop solutions to key challenges um, around energy. Um, and we first ran Spark last year, and this year's edition was just as packed. We had more than 60 people come along on the day. Um, our keynote address was from Nina Skaripska at the REA 
um, and taking part in our panel discussion and helping to chair some of those roundtables and that I was talking about were representatives from Tech UK, the ADE, Low CVP um, and the Energy Institute. So this was a real, real hands-on day. Great. And obviously throughout this day, um, there's a lot of energy leaders in the room that are there to get network and, and you've gone and grabbed some time with some of them. Yes. Um, so coming up in part two, we have interviews on that day with Ollie Rosevear, who is Costa Coffee's head of environment regular on this podcast but we haven't had him on um for a while partly owing to the coca-cola deal that's been taking up a lot of time for everyone at costa um and also with adrian fox who is a lead for the national trust renewable energy investment program um and this is a really interesting program in that a lot of their properties are off grid or listed Hmm. so there's a lot um very diverse estate with ample challenges there yeah, mainly the aesthetics as well. You can't just bung a bung a wind turbine next to a no. listed building or those solar panels on it. I've um yeah, I, I know I know both Holly and Adrian um quite well. I've spoken to them for, for content in the past and it's always an insightful conversation when either of those two are involved. So uh listeners, uh, enjoy this spark double header and then join us for the third and final part of our Net Zero November podcast, um, where we discuss carbon capture and public pledges. Enjoy. Great. So for this part of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, we are in a very grey and drizzly Birmingham for the second year of our Spark event um, for our Energy Leaders Group. And for those who are unfamiliar, this is an event um, designed to, pardon the pun, spark new ideas and connections um, between those working towards a more energy efficient and low carbon future. And the weather outside might be a bit dismal, but the chat in here has been very lively and so has our our lunch um, and I have kindly <laughs> I have kindly pulled Ollie Rosevear from Costa Coffee away from his pudding for this chat. Ollie how are you doing? Yeah really good thank you it's really great to be at the event and obviously having an opportunity to uh, kind of take some space to think about how we can kind of approach net zero um, and our kind of strategy moving forward. So. No it's nice to have you back I'm aware we haven't spoken in a while I think the last time was when the coffee cup um, recycling drive was was launched so what have you been up to since then so uh so i'm back in the uk business really looking at our uh, store footprint so understanding exactly what our new strategy is um post obviously our sale from uh, whitbread uh and how we're going to start approaching some of these really key critical issues for our business be it around uh achieving net zero or be it around achieving net zero to landfill and actually how we start to redrive our operations forward from a stability point of view and really step up mm-hmm. from where we're already at in terms of some of the activity we're doing. Mm-hmm. No, and the last year has obviously been one of big transitions. So for you away from Whitbread with new work with Coca-Cola and then the amount of policy shift and public attention shift has also been massive. And I was going to ask for your targets, <laughs> but I'm aware that might be a little bit changeable at the moment yeah definitely so we're we're um, currently uh, reviewing our strategy and we're hoping to have some uh, some new uh, targets out to the new year um, but yeah it's been really exciting to actually kind of relook at exactly how we approach um, sustainability within Costa uh, and how we can make those projects really relevant to our brands obviously we've had a massive change in our brand as well in terms of actually how we approach stuff so not only our retail business but Costa Express which is our then business and obviously the at-home market 
and also our ready to drink products. So it's really expanded where we're having to think about and look about how we approach sustainability as a whole and actually where our biggest opportunities and focuses need to be for the next year. Mm-hmm. And that's not to mention geographical expansion as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we're, we're already in uh, 29 countries uh, as a business, uh, but clearly I think, you know, with the, uh, with the new world, um, I'm sure there'll be further expansion there and obviously it's really looking at uh, where the opportunity is moving forward and where our, I guess, our footprint is going to shift. But I think our UK business remains a fundamental of what we do and actually the kind of home of, of Costa. Um, so certainly what we want to do in the UK business is really drive a leadership position across the whole Costa estate to make sure we're doing the right thing and really stepping up against some of these challenges. And what are some of the actions that you guys are leading on with that at the moment or some that you have, have on the horizon that you might be able to touch on? So I guess, you know, to, to date we've uh, obviously done things like moving into uh, 100% renewables across our estate. Uh, we've obviously uh, done a number of sites like our, our retail pod, so our um, EcoPod model. I think the next challenge is actually how we start to really expand that model. So we're very much looking about those opportunities to really stretch our landlords in terms of the buildings they're offering us. Um, also looking at actually what our renewable strategy is. So whilst we're obviously uh, purchasing renewable energy, actually how do we move that to the point where we might have on-site renewables and how we can start to extend that piece. Um, but also, I guess, you know, from a low-carbon economy point of view, you know, around actually our customers and our team's movement. So, you know, the move around electric vehicles. So actually, how do we start to approach that from a, uh, a brand point of view in terms of offering our teams kind of more low-carbon ways of, of travelling, but also our customers as well. So actually, how can we make sure what point of view is about that opportunity? Um, I guess on the waste agenda as well, still continues to be a big challenge for us. Um, so again, yeah, we're kind of uh, refreshing our relationship with Biobean. Uh, you know, over 4,000 tonnes of, of coffee grounds now being sent uh, to the Biobean facility, saving you know, thousands of tonnes of, of carbon every single year. So again, really thinking about turning that waste into resource, which is something we've always been quite passionate about, is actually how do we start to really see some of those waste systems as a real resource for, um, for our business and for other people. No, and you talked there about helping teams and helping individuals as well. And one of the tables that we have today is about behaviour change and engagement. And I wondered if you could touch on some of the things that have been done there. I know we talked about maybe the trial of the contactless cups um, and schemes for staff too. Yeah, definitely. So our teams are really important to our our success when it comes down to um, the energy efficiency or waste management. So we're really trying to make sure that we keep our messaging relevant to our teams, uh, make sure they can see the impact that they have and they do the right thing. So it's really been kind of uh, helping them to reimagine exactly what happens when they do that right thing by putting the right thing in the right bin keeping the doors closed or making sure they're keeping on air conditioning mm-hmm. really starting to see that impact so they can kind of get that, that kind of good feeling yeah. um, it's been really interesting as well when we look at some of what we have done today actually how that's really driven value from an employee point of view so actually we're seeing people coming to come and work for us because we are a, a genuinely kind of sustainable business and that's been a real benefit for us being able to retain staff and gain staff because of the reputation we've driven over the last few years and again of course we want to retain that that um that position so very much all of our new strategy going into next year will be very much about continuing that leadership position uh, in the UK and make sure we're doing the right thing. Great well I'm sure that you're not short of jobs to be getting on with covering all of that we've gone from everything from um, coffee cups to bio waste to national policy and international rollouts so thank you so much for taking the time today Ollie. No problem at all thank you very much. Great so heading into the afternoon here at Spark and we have just wrapped up um, wrapped up the final sessions um, and summarised the key takeaways and pledges which have included a fresh new um, net zero by 2030 
um, pledge that will be live on the site soon. Um, and while everyone else is rushing off to catch their train, um, Adrian Fox from the National Trust has kindly agreed to spend five minutes with us here on the podcast. Adrian, how are you doing? Uh, very well, thank you. Very interesting day. Yes, and what is it that you've, what of the tables have you been sitting on today? So the flexibility session this afternoon and uh, this morning the net zero strategies. Mm -hmm. No, and as you mentioned, coming at these issues as a charity rather than an end user business um, for profit, some of the drivers and some of the ways that you'll be approaching these topics is a bit different. Um, So what did you take away from those tables today? Well, I think in terms of uh, net zero, the, we're all facing the same challenges. Uh, we all have the same desires and aspirations. Uh, and looking at your scope one, two, and three, I think we all concluded that, that actually scope three were probably the, the hardest ones to quantify mm. and, and deal with. But probably the biggest for most organisations too. Quite possibly, although there were some arguments from, from other participants that, that actually what are our scope three are somebody else's scope ones and twos so right. so it, it's a I think essentially it's a complex uh, it's a complex argument uh, it's a complex problem um, but ultimately if we don't if we do not do something now until we understand that problem in greater detail all we are potentially doing is is adding to that problem so mm-hmm. i think it's a case of we need to act on what we know now even though things may change as we move forward in with a better understanding mm. and just on that would you mind reminding us now listeners what the national trust's current carbon and energy targets are so we're just under review at the moment but uh, our current one is coming to a close back in 2010 we recognized we need to do something about our our energy uh, strategy and we uh, committed to generating 50% of our in-hand uh, heat and power mm-hmm. from renewable sources by 2020 at the moment we uh, we are coming to the obviously yes. the close of that and it all our all our key measures and KPIs seem to suggest we're going to achieve that. Uh, that's based on the fact that we delivered something like 70 or so projects so far. Uh, of the remaining 30 that there have already been approved through their business cases and, and energy KPIs, they will tip us into that uh, plus 50%. That said, that's a that's a benchmark based on. 2008-2010 so right. that target is moved and although we've exceeded the original uh, baseline whether we'll actually achieve a 2020 baseline is, is questionable which we've tried to push a little bit beyond to take to keep control of that we also aim to uh, reduce our fossil fuel use particularly our oil uh, we now use uh, from around 24 percent of our heat came from uh, oil uh, we're now less than 10 percent that equates to over a million litres of oil displaced a year by uh, renewable technologies. As we're coming to the close of that particular phase, uh, we're also now building a phase two, which is our desire to to go net zero on in-hand heat and power. Uh, Hopefully early next year we will have a a firm strategy and formalise that strategy. Uh, Initially that target we think is achievable by 2030. Although we do know that there are some uh, questions being asked as to whether or not we can deliver it earlier, even as early as 2025. Amazing. And then of that strategy, what actions are going to be likely to be 
in there because I know you guys have a lot of sites that are all in different places mm. some might be off grid some might be listed so there there has to be a really tailored approach I presume yeah so we will have to look at everything uh, and and assess it on its own merit we'll 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 consider all technologies and it, it may well be that we we have to think slightly outside of the box and look at large-scale deployment of uh, of solar PV or wind even we're, at this moment in time, we're, we're not saying anything is off the table. Uh, we, we need to uh, currently going through that benchmarking and establishing exactly what we need to do and what our current building stock uh, um, we can continue with the what we would class as business as usual. So dealing mm -hmm. with the oil that, and the gases that are already still in place there, uh, and then look at the gaps and then look at how we fill those gaps. What we what we do know uh, is we are looking at potentially uh, 100 gigawatts of energy per year over the next 10 years. Exciting times for you guys. Though. Very exciting and very challenging, yeah. Of course. Well, thank you for taking the time today and I'll let you get back to the many, many projects that I'm sure will make up that strategy. Thank you very much. So welcome back to the final part of this week's episode. So far, we've heard from the businesses that have pledged to reach net zero, uh, and we've heard a bit about how resource efficiency and just leadership in general will help deliver those ambitions. But what about the actual blueprints needed to reach net zero? So, so right now, I'm going to read out some actual recommendations from the Committee on Climate Change, the report that you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier, Sarah. Um, and some of the key findings here is that 2040 is too late for the phase out of petrol and diesel cars and vans and that current plans for actually delivering that 2040 phase out are way too vague. Um, over 10 years after the Climate Change Act was passed, there is still no serious plan for decarbonising UK heating systems and no large scale trials have begun for either heat pumps or hydrogen. Um, and we've touched on those both with the interviewees so far, but yep, still no actual government concrete plans for them. Uh, carbon capture usage and storage, CCUS for, for those uh, of, who are fans of acronyms, um, is crucial to the to delivery of net zero greenhouse gas emissions um, and strategically important to the UK economy. And that's yet to get started. Uh, afforestation targets for 20,000 hectares a year across UK nations um, which is also due to increase by a further 7,000 hectares by 2025, aren't being delivered. Um, it was less than 10,000 hectares planted. I believe the piece that you are writing today actually says it's probably a bit less than that. Yes. Um, and that's over the last five years as well. So it seems uh, we have some work to do. And, and Sarah, I want to touch on the CCUS point and another question for you. Do you know how many large-scale uh, CCUS projects there are operating or under development around the world? As of the C uh, as of the CCC's report, so twenty eighteen. I don't know globally, but I know in the UK that it's one. It's forty three globally, mm -hmm. and okay, you've answered my second bonus point anyway, so <laughs> you get you, you get a point. Um, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot there, but I do believe that this does kind of chime in well with the last interview for this podcast. Mm -hmm. No, so I mentioned earlier on this podcast that. Meeting net zero doesn't mean completely zero. There are obviously still going to be hard to abate sectors that are generating some emissions. And as we've mentioned, one way to address that is through offsetting 
a minefield in its own yes very <laughs> in much its so. own right um but another way is through ccus so technologies that actually capture um the carbon either to to store it or to put it to use um in a new format and to that end our last interview is with dr rowena sellens who is the ceo of a a CCUS company called Econic Technologies um, and the technologies that are used by Econic are used to basically take that carbon and turn it into a resource that can be used in the plastics industry. Um, so with so much focus on how we close the loop on plastics and not using fossil fuels to make them, the aim of the company is sort of to kill two birds with one stone as it were and address the, that issue as well as carbon emissions and climate. Great. Um, another interview whereby the net zero conversation delves nicely into the the resource efficiency and, and circular economy debate as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, let's just let's just jump straight into that interview. Great. So the next stop on our net zero November podcast is a little bit of a different interview. To be honest, it's one with someone we haven't had on the podcast before, and that's Rowena Sellens, who is the CEO of Iconic Technologies, um, a clean tech company that is leading the way in carbon capture and utilisation and from what I can see its innovation um, allows manufacturers to create new plastics out of captured captured CO2 so sort of solving two birds with one stone really the emissions problem um, and a circular economy for plastics so thank you so much for joining me on this call today Rowena. You're very welcome Sarah. Um, yeah, so I wanted to get stuck right in and ask, so CCU and CCUS were highlighted multiple times in the by the Committee on Climate Change in its net zero advice to government and have been and that sentiment has been echoed by BASE um and the BASE committee. But for people listening that are from from businesses, what what sort of businesses should be looking to harness that that opportunity and and how sort of where does this fit into the net zero business puzzle well right now the most of the major generators of carbon dioxide in the power steel and cement industries are all very active in this area as you can imagine Mm. in the chemical industry and other manufacturing industries and certainly we work mostly with the chemical industry People are increasingly looking at how they manage their emissions um, and what options they could have for using what is essentially an abundant, low-cost waste material um, to, and turning it into products and, and creating value from it. Um, for capture and storage, that's, so CCS, that the industrial focus is prime, I think. But utilisation can have such a wider impact in the chain of manufacturing all the way through to consumer goods. And certainly a very positive move forward, in in my view, and one that we're experiencing as a business, is that we're increasingly working with downstream users as materials that want to understand new materials that can offer them new properties or different benefits, and in particular are interested in materials that can turn into CO2. So they're very keen to look at the opportunities it creates for them. And I think that that's really important because it will bring forward, it creates a demand and a draw and an interest in CO2-containing materials that's particularly useful for CCU. Mm. 
No, I know, and of these companies, I wanted to ask, so you've mentioned some of the companies that are already heavily um, in, involved in this, and these do tend to be kind of hard to abate sectors, and then going down to companies that are maybe just starting um, to, to look at that. But what would your advice be on doing so without being accused of greenwash? I know that one of the misconceptions around this is that if a business is investing in this sort of technology, it must not be keen to address its emissions in in another way for example which i know is a is a train of thought that your company is keen to address uh, absolutely um i think i i do have some understanding and empathy with the backlash against greenwashing but we have to ensure it doesn't mean that everything that people try to do is tainted with disbelief businesses can help themselves i think by being prepared to validate their claims and actually back their promises with tangible actions. Now, a lot of businesses are working at how they reduce emissions fundamentally, how they change their business models uh, and the materials that they work with. CCUS is part of their solution, not the only thing. So um, I don't think that uh, we should be too judgmental about people trying to, to adopt that. I think there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that consumers, shareholders and electors are all really stepping up to challenge and hold us all to account mm -hmm. for all of our actions. So let's actually respond proactively to that, provide them with the explanations, the transparency and the evidence to say, you know, we really mean what we say and we're, we're doing something. Mm. No, thank you for that. And an another sort of criticism of CCS and CCU that we're seeing are concerns about the technology being in its infancy, which um, which was mentioned in one of Greta Thunberg's speeches and therefore seemed to really take off. Um, so I w was hoping to pick your brains on um, how true this is and what we need from policy now, in the UK specifically, um, to help these technologies mature more and become mainstream um, at the pace required. Yes, the technical person in me is going to um, just point out that we're not talking about a single technology. We're not even talking about a single technology for capture uh, and one for utilisation and one for storage. There's a range of technologies in each of those areas, and some of those have been around for quite a while. So I think um, for industrial technologies like these, maturity isn't about how long it's been known, or talked about, um, and infancy for me suggests it's um, only just, the concept is only just emerging. Um, I think we're beyond that stage, but maturity for these industrial technologies comes from scaling up, mm -hmm. scaling that technology, learning from its operation in true industrial conditions. And for it to be mainstream, you're talking about you know, needing multiple users and an established infrastructure that supports that commercial use because ultimately it's about making sure these things become economically sustainable. No, and have you and the rest of the team at Econic been working with with policymakers on on bringing that about? I think that uh, to get to the point where we're really driving forward on these technologies, it does need to be a combination of policy backed with tangible support. And we have been involved in a number of um, uh, working parties and, and, and forums to, to share our views on that. Um, the, 
you know, it's, it's about really ensuring there's investment in scaling technologies, um, uh, in developing the infrastructure, and collectively, there needs to be a push through policy drivers to make sure that everyone does tackle net zero challenge. No, great. Thank you for that. And in the midst of those challenges, I wanted to end on a positive note and ask that to, to date, have there actually been any policy enablers or do you see any on the on the near horizon, perhaps? I think in general terms, um, there's, you know, there's a range of uh, carbon credit and tax schemes in different parts of the, the world um, that are designed to incentivise businesses to, to, to tackle their emissions and not always focused on CCUS. Um, most of those are complex and not necessarily transparent. Um, uh, I think it's probably time for there to be a more challenging ap approach that reflects the urgency of the need to invest in these, these areas and adopt CCUS, uh, and fundamentally the scale of the consequences if we don't. For, to put that in context, for Econic, we're commercialising um, carbon utilisation technology that, as you said earlier, allows manufacturers to use captured carbon dioxide to make products that have enhanced properties at significantly lower cost and, of course, is reducing CO2 emissions. Um, and frankly, it's the, it, the economic and performance factors that drive that technology development with our customers. Right. Um, the, the, the CU piece, the utilisation piece, is a nice to have. And yet, for every tonne of carbon dioxide used with our technology, a further two tonnes of emissions were avoided because you're using less fossil-based feedstock. So, somewhere, policies need to come into play that really do help and drive that. I think, for us, we have benefited from the policies of investment in innovation and the early commercialisation stages. Mm -hmm. um, we had funding from the Horizon 2020 programme, um, and uh, that was key to, to building a demonstration unit for our technology. And I know that Bayes' recent commitments um, to establish CCUS hubs and to fund projects within those hubs, I think will be a really key tangible drive forward on this. Great. Well, I guess that only time will tell, but I have my fingers crossed for you and, and for those other projects as well, Rowena. Thank you, Sarah. Great. Well, uh, thank you to uh, Rowena for an exciting look at a potentially transformational technology. Um, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but before we do finish, uh, I think we can kind of do a net zero themed version of our success stories of the week, mm -hmm. or in this case, the, the month, because it is a month of themed content. Um, so Sarah, I think both of us can probably pick out our favourite net zero announcement this month and we can tell each other why. Um, and... Uh, because I, I'm planning this, I'm going to get you, you to go first, what I think. I feel like I'm at therapy. <laughs> Hello, I'm Sarah, and my net zero story is... Um, I've actually picked one from before this month, in that I think that that makes it more impressive, mm -hmm. um, in that it was made in December, back when like not many nations had actually set a net zero target. Um, and it, came from, it comes from Maersk, which is a Danish company and the world's biggest container shipping company and at that point sort of just after the IPCC report before much national legislation um, it set a 2050 net zero goal um, 
including a framework to help develop new fuels, um, hybrid electric vessels and electric vessels, um, to basically help the sector make them commercially viable by 2030. That's because the average boat's lifespan is about 20 to 25 years in this area. So it needs to be out there at that point to deliver for 2050. I just thought that was particularly impressive, both given the time context and because this is, like aviation, one of the really hard-to-abate sectors. Um, research by the European Parliament has shown that internationally shipping currently accounts for around 2.5% of global CO2 emissions. That's more than aviation, mm. which gets a lot of attention. Um, and there are also projections that as population growth and globalisation continues... Um, it could eat up 17% of the 2050 carbon budget without better regulation and technology investments. And you, and you said it as well, it's, it's, it's kind of minimal use of, of offsets. Yes. So it's mainly focused on these um, investment into these technologies. Mm. So sourcing renewable power, becoming more efficient, um, for example, by using digital technologies to optimise route and, and load. Um, an investment into carbon neutral fuels and supply chains and electric technologies. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the offset thing just jumped out to me because you know we've both done so much on on covering offsets recently. Um, yeah. The the webinar write up that you did answers that that kind of question is is it a green wash or is it a necessity? And the answer is it's, it's a bit of both basically. Um, and I think there is a danger, as you mentioned, the the net in net zero could be used by some businesses as a bit of a you know, an excuse to operate business as usual and just, you know, chuck some money at some offsets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market, whether it's kind of VCS or gold standard, is improving, um, but there's, I think there's still a lot of questions around the, the kind of life cycle emissions of what you offset now might not necessarily actually be um, an equivalent in the future when those projects are up and running. Um, that's around reforestation rather than kind of mm-hmm. clean cooking, for example. So, yeah, that's, it's, yeah it's, that's not to mention, like, even if it's delivering these benefits people have obviously been recording like social Hmm. problems with supply chains for for example clean cooking fuels and renewable energy projects yeah there's that that to be considered as well yeah exactly i I think um i think you know our net zero november content perhaps eats into this issue a bit but i think we really need to you know there should almost be a disclaimer that you know um net zero does not mean you know a business can't merely just you know they can't stop focusing on carbon reduction that that reduction should be the key aspect mm-hmm. of, of that strategy um mine's actually also not from this month well it kind of is <laughs> um so there was an announcement this month that builds on a strategy that's actually been placed in for a while um uh, so earlier this month and we've already touched on the business global carpet manufacturer um interface so they they revealed that they had achieved the environmental ambitions of its mission zero strategy one year ahead of its 2020 time frame uh, mission zero has been in place since 1994 um which is crazy to think about that you know most companies probably didn't even have a sustainability department in 1994 i was i was born in 1994 i was so three years old yeah older than me yeah exactly <laughs> um and it's it's and it's an ambitious strategy as well. You know, it's focused on reducing impacts across factories, products and suppliers. Um, so it kind of takes, you know, scope free into account in that sense. And over the last 25 years, Interface through Mission uh, Zero, I've got to make sure not to call it Mission Possible, um, has recorded 69% reduction in the carbon footprint of its carpet tile products, a 96% reduction in 
greenhouse gas emissions globally. It sourced 89% renewable energy and 100% renewable electricity globally, reduced water use per unit of production by 89% globally, and recorded a 92% reduction uh, in waste to landfill across its global business. And now that Mission Zero is kind of done and dusted, they are pushing ahead with the brilliantly named Climate Take Back strategy, which has been in place for two years, I believe. Um, and it's it's got these really kind of great um, provocative headlines about bringing carbon home and reversing climate change, transforming dispersed materials into products and goodness, uh, creating supply chains that benefit all life. Um, and my favourite one, factories that uh, act like forests. Um, they've obviously all got actual tangible deliverables underneath, but it's, it's a really great um, just soundbite of a strategy. And also last year, the company also committed to becoming carbon negative or positive, as you mentioned, how you want to, however you want to kind of uh, articulate that by 2040. And the reasons in the, in my mind is there's actually an interview um, on our site right now with their regional sustainability manager, John Koo. Um, and I really do encourage uh, you all to read that um, and also click on the uh, lessons for the future report, which is embedded in it. Um, it's, it's an interface report kind of outlines the steps that businesses have to take to deliver transformational change. Um, and it really focuses on how, you know, if you set a big moonshot goal that, you know, it's a bit scary, not sure how you're going to get there, it actually mobilizes the business towards it. And another interesting point is actually to stop viewing carbon as the enemy and actually look to how it can be used as a resource and one of the building blocks for the future. Um, so yeah, please do go check that out. And, and while you're doing that, also make sure that you've subscribed to this podcast via iTunes and Spotify. And if you're feeling pretty ambitious, uh, why not go onto the ED website, find the Mission Possible drop-down and make your own net zero pledge this month. But that's that's it for today. I mean, we'll be back soon, a bit sooner than usual, actually. Um, we're going to be looking at energy innovations in our next podcast. And Sarah is actually back off to university. I feel like I say that, you know, every month, every couple of months or so for a, for a tour um uh gloucestershire university is that right yes yes um, i just can't stay away <laughs> so there we go be sure to look out for uh that episode uh coming up probably at the end of this month or very early december until then though it's a goodbye from sarah goodbye and a goodbye from me goodbye mm-hmm.